From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello, Dave here. We've got a bonus episode of In the City for you this week. It's hosted by Bloomberg Radio host Stephen Carroll, but he kindly stepped in for me and Francine to record an episode of In the City and an event this week in London. The event was Grow Summit. It's a very interesting conversation with two outstanding guests. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations and the stories shaping the world of finance. I'm Stephen Carroll. This week we are recording in front of an audience at the Grow Summit at Battersea Power Station. This is an event for scale-up companies. So the conversation we're having is about building and growing a business in the UK in 2023 with the background of the gloomy economic environment, the gloomy business confidence that has been measured in recent surveys, and of course, the ever-present impact of higher interest rates and how that affects the cost of borrowing as well. Joining me to discuss Martha Lane Fox, President of the British Chambers of Commerce, Chair at WeTransfer, among many other roles that you hold, and Pete Flint, uh, who is general partner at NFX, a venture firm based in San Francisco, founder too of the US property website, Trulia. Uh, thank you to you both for being with us. Looking forward to getting into this conversation. You've both had long and illustrious careers in business. You've done many jobs and many different things. You've built incredible businesses over your careers as well. But you're also former colleagues because you worked together in the early days of lastminute.com as well. So we never say, you know, in the city, bringing, bringing old friends back together. Uh, as well. So we're very glad to have you both. Um, Martha, I actually want to start with a question about lastminute.com um, and whether you think, you know, that was a business built in the late 90s here in the UK. Do you think it'd be easier or harder to create a lastminute.com similar business now compared to then? I think it would be easier. Um, I think it would be easier for multiple reasons. I mean, my, my, the only thing I might caveat with is that Pete might not be part of it. And without that, I'm not sure it would have been a success because Brent and I were like there being the co-founders. But Pete, as you will quickly see when he's talking, is the fundamental building block of any successful business. So that's the only caveat. But I think it'll be easier for many reasons. More access to capital. You know, everyone said no to our original business plan. And despite the kind of starry story of the trajectory we went on, it was hard to raise money in the public um, uh, journey that we went on was when we really got cash into the business. So that's one thing. Secondly, the technology is much better. You know, I remember sitting watching the website. I'm sure Pete remembers that endlessly the, you know, loading speeds. We're obsessed with loading speeds. The idea that you could actually buy something on the site is a joke. It was me with a fax machine writing down people's credit card numbers. Don't tell anyone. And so, all you know, those things are easier. So then the, the whole ecosystem, obviously the competition is different, but I still, um, think that there is an opportunity actually to build a strong lastminute.com. It exists now, but I think it could be even powered up more. So I think it would be easier. I think there are, there are 20, 23 parallels to the idea yeah. of taking something off the internet and putting a fax machine. I'm sure lots of people in this room <laughs> identify with the bootstrapping of early parts of businesses building that um, as well. I, I wonder how you kind of your view is, you you know work in Silicon Valley now, you spent a lot of your career in the US. How do you view the UK as a, as a place to build a business now? Where was... Where was 
I, reminiscing, I, I fondly remember, I was sitting next to the fax machine, so I was like, <laughs> I was, when, it, when it had to go through again, I was doing that work as well. But So I moved to the US in 2003, so we were together 20 years ago. Um, as children. As children, literally. Um, and I was, I think I was probably frustrated at the time because it's like, to scale last minute, we had offices in France, in Germany, in Italy, in Sweden, in Spain, Australia, like all these different places. And you had to deal with local offices, local distribution, local marketing. And I, and I moved to Silicon Valley originally for, for grad school, but, um, it was sort of remarkable how you could spread across the US really with half a dozen people. We were live in the US. And I think today, you know, travel somewhat regulated, but let's assume kind of most businesses are sort of less regulated. You can actually build global businesses out of the UK. You can, there is Google, there is Facebook, there is Instagram, there is app stores. You can, there's marketing services. You can translate stuff in a hundred different languages very quickly. So I think you, um, it is so much easier to scale sort of internationally to do those things. And so my frustrations back in 2003 of like, oh, this is so hard to like, deal with French employment law and kind of all these different things and, and French marketing is like, now it's actually uh, much easier to scale this stuff globally and in, in terms of building, building this business, which is, I mean, we're, we're seeing it in the portfolio, we're seeing the companies that they're starting to spread incredibly quickly across many different countries. And actually, when it comes to London, I think that's a very unique place that, that London has, you know, potential to be a global technology hub, more so than I think many other places globally. And is that, in your view, you know, because a lot of conversations being had, of course, post-Brexit about how Britain competes with other European cities, that competition, of course, has been there for a very long time when it comes to attracting businesses like the people in this room who are building them as well. Is that, does, is English what helps there? What's, what do you see as being yeah. the aspect that allows... It certainly helps, but I don't think it's zero-sum. I really don't think it's zero-sum. There's so many entrepreneurs, there's not enough capital and there probably should be more entrepreneurs, but I think it's not zero-sum. So I don't think... I think the opportunity is not to compete against, um, Europe, but to actually, okay, like, you know, and then successful companies going to offices in continental Europe, they're going to offices in the UK and probably have offices in the US. Um, but I think it's what sets, I think the, the UK apart is, you know, is obviously there's a concentration of capital that's happening. You're seeing the sort of the offices opening up in a lot of US firms that sort of venture capital environment is transformed in yeah. the last 25 years, I think. Last minute raised capital by chance, and was yep. it you sat next to someone on a plane and sort of sent a business plan to the wrong address, and it just so <laughs> happened that there was a VC in the address and opened yeah. it. It's sort of like circumstance and happens. So raise your hand if that has happened to you. <laughs> okay, no hands, fine. <laughs> Never yeah. give up. But I mean, but it's an interesting conversation about funding as well because the, there is this conversation you do hear from yeah. people who who don't have that access to capital. Yeah. How, what, how do you see that environment now with, with all of your hats on of the various jobs that you do as, as the... I mean, I think I feel as though, you know, I'm an inherent optimist. I think you have to be as an entrepreneur and having, you know, had the experiences I've had over the last 20 years, but this country is really bifurcated, right? And it's super important, I think, that we keep having that conversation. There are a huge number of things that are much, much better. And to Pete's point, you know, London, you're, you're being a bit shy about London. When we were talking earlier, you actually said you thought London was second in the world to Silicon Valley. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to big that up a bit more. <laughs> so I'm, I hope that's okay. Attribution to Pete. Um, so I think you know, that's phenomenal, right? But we know that there are still challenges outside uh, the golden triangle of places. 
We know that the access to capital is not equally spread amongst genders, about socioeconomic groups, about ethnic groups, so forth, that, that you know, is well described often. So there's a lot to do. It is better. But I think the real opportunity that we can go for in the next decade is to think about London not, and I know that um, Saul talks about this too, not as Silicon Valley, but to be a truly diverse and really representative place that is building scale businesses, but they're not shooting just for this King, sorry, unicorn, sorry, you're on the podcast. That's quite I totally right. forgot. <laughs> it's fine. I totally forgot. <laughs> unicorn or decacorn or whatever the hell status it is, but actually to think about a different way of spreading prosperity and wealth and values. And is that also across sectors? Because mm. it does feel like if you listen to the people who run this country, that there's such a focus on particular areas, you know, on tech, on AI most recently as well. Is there scope for a broad base of those companies to be built? A hundred percent. I mean, I defer to Pete too, but I'd just make one point before I do, which is, you know, I was part of setting up government digital service in gov.uk and there is just so much we can do enabling government to be more active in engaging with startups, but opening up the public sector. You know, every single one of those brilliant lightning pitches earlier needs government actually in this country, not everywhere, to help them really scale. And so in my opinion, that's another place that the UK could really lead and London could lead specifically in terms of really making sure that we are ensuring the procurement process is open to startups in a way that it is just not at the minute, ensuring that our ministers are able to talk about AI competently when not just interviewing Elon Musk on stage. So all those things are really uh, careful, active policies that we can make in change. So I think there's a huge opportunity. We're not done yet. It's much better than it was, but there's a way, way, way to go. Does that mean a different government will help? I don't know. Okay. But I think the, that the UK has had I mean, it's changed along the last 20 years, but the last five years has been particularly beneficial. We think of the one of the hottest sectors in tech, and it's debatable who you speak to, but clearly fintech, clearly AI, clearly the intersection between computation and biology. All those areas are incredibly strong. And I think, you know, the UK uh, fintech environment is incredibly strong. Um, AI, clearly the sort of like academic meets deep mind, it's sort of long history of success. And then and then the bio stuff is like, is, is very interesting. So I think there's, you know, it's, you know, this stuff doesn't happen overnight, but there's momentum in the market. The, the other piece I want to touch on just that, you know, you spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. It's like, you know, that Silicon Valley is not the success of Silicon Valley is not because people were born in, I don't know, Idaho and then moved to, to Silicon Valley. They weren't, you know, moved from Palo Alto yeah. to San Francisco. It's like, it's the story of immigrants. It's absolutely the story of immigrants. I think that, you know, 50% of the unicorns, um, to choose that, you know, definition is, uh, found, have a founder who is a first generation immigrant, something like two thirds a second generation immigrant. And we all know the stories behind the successful immigrant founder. So it's, and the immigrants really do create the startups. And I, and I think that there are. Why is that, do you think? Bunch of different reasons. One is, one is that, um, they look at problems differently. If you grew up in, I mean, I, I sort of moved to the US and said, this, it sucks to buy a house there. You know, and if I'm, you know, if I complain about that to my parents who live there, they're like, oh, this is the way it's always done. Don't worry about it. Um, but I was like, this makes no sense. You know, so fresh ideas, naivety is, is absolutely a sort of key ingredient. Two, I think the work ethic is just immigrant work ethic. There's no plan B. Um, you kind of like, I think, you know, my, my mother was a high school teacher in, in London, it's like, and the immigrants worked a hell of a lot harder than the, uh, the, the non-immigrants. They were just like, they had the power, that will to succeed. Um, and they, and they work, um, 
that they work incredibly hard and they don't really have a, a sort of plan B. So I think that 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 combination is incredibly powerful. Um, and I think the... Do you think the UK doesn't have that? No, I think it has it in spades. I think it's like, they're, they're, I mean, look, it's, it's a, you know, everyone has a different opinion, but I think it's like, I think the potential for immigration and Brexit is yeah. obviously a, sort of a negativity, but I think it's compared to many other places in the world, it is a is a great environment for immigrants to come and the government's doing their bit to help the, the, the visa process. Not enough. I okay. mean, they, we, I think the elephant in the room when I meet businesses that are not to do with the digital sector, and I'm traveling about as president of British Chambers of Commerce, which I was in Stoke yesterday, I was Doncaster a couple of weeks ago. The single biggest issue that companies that I meet there around about the place face is people and skills, and they point directly to issues related to Brexit and specifically that the short-term visas and contracts, um, that that list that the government opened up is not long enough, doesn't encompass all the things that they need. So I don't think we have that conversation enough in the open. I don't think politicians are brave enough about it. Brexit affected the skills base, full stop, in my opinion. And I think we need to be able to address that head on before we really can power up more. Of what, what specifically in terms of professions or skill sets need to be on that list? Well, What's missing? More, I mean, Across the board, I don't think I could even, you know, it's well known about hospitality through to uh, manufacturing, engineering, software, whatever, but it's across the board. I haven't met a business that said to me, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I can be whoever I want. I can retain whoever I want. I can retain whoever I want. It hasn't, uh, it isn't like that, I think, in the economy right now. Okay. Um, and that's, that's a very interesting point. I mean, the, the question that got a lot of focus recently, and this is, you know, kind of moving up, upwards on the scale when we're scaling up is, is listings in London and the lack of listings in London and how that's become sort of a reputational issue. Uh, you know, recently, Julia Hoggett, the CEO of the London Stock Exchange, spoke to the In The City podcast saying that she wants the, the London market to be young, hungry and scrappy. Is that something that you think that's achievable for a, a market in London to be able to attract that? I mean, look, with your, with your I mean, look I'm, I'm British, so I'm like, I'm, I would sort of, I'm rooting for the kind of um, uh, more British listings, but I would absolutely not advise any company that I'm backing to go public in the UK. Um, go do it in the US. It's like, um, the, particularly technology, I mean, I don't think the investor base really understands it. And I think they will, they will encourage a British listed company to sort of act more like the other stuff in the FTSE, which are, you know, very traditional, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's oil and gas or, you know, manufacturing. I just think, go to the US. Like, uh, the investors understand it. There's, you know, orders of magnitude more capital. Mm. Um, you know, can they do something about it? Sure, I, I don't know what they can do about it, but um, I think it's really, really hard. I, you know, I didn't follow the... And has that the, changed over time? Because we, I feel like there's a lot of focus recently on the lack of listings. Was it very different? 10 years ago than it is now is it has the US sucked up all of that potential for for fundraising when it comes to public listings I think so it feels like it I mean that the delivery IPO was that two years ago I didn't track it closely but I think that was a, a bit of a disaster at the time um, and so I just think you know if you're an entrepreneur and you want to build a global business you go where the capital is the investors understand it um, that the, the public markets and I, and I think it it's not, and I don't think it sort of should be seen necessarily as a negativity, like you're rejecting your kind of home country. It's sort of quite the opposite. Like, okay, I'm going to maximize success of the company, make it into a global success story. The benefits will come back to the, to the ecosystem. And, you know, it's, it's possible that, that 
you know, London will improve, but it's, it's for the next couple of years, I think it's, it's going to be very challenging. Is, 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 is listings the right thing to be looking oh, at in this conversation or I mean, is, is I, it a bit I, of red herring? I, I don't know, but I do think that we push for all the reasons Pete knows better than me about the, you know, the tension around your venture capital funds, you the funds, the funds you're then uh, responsible for. We push companies to go public. I'm not sure that we do it in the right time frames very often, a bit longer for companies to scale and to get bigger and so on. It's never a bad thing in my opinion. So I think, of course, it's a lens, but, you know, and the work that Janet and uh, Sherry have done for decades around helping companies scale is as fundamental and important. And we can achieve, I think, as much without such a laser focus. So all things have to happen at the same time, but yeah. we shouldn't push companies who aren't ready to go public. One of the things that happened over the summer is that the the Chancellor announced what was known as the Mansion House Compact, this idea of trying to get the big pension funds to invest more in unlisted companies. Um, it, it hasn't made much progress so far. Are you optimistic that would help? Um, it's complicated, isn't it? I think standing back out from it, should pension funds use their capital more effectively in this country? Yes, right? And the mechanisms to do that there are hundreds of different ways that I know both this Treasury right now are looking at that and I know the opposition are looking at it as well. So I do think it's good focus. I think there's lots that can be unlocked. I think you have to be careful what the mechanisms are to do that and what the incentive structures are that you create for the pension funds and also obviously for where that money goes. Yeah. Um, Pete, is then, I, I hear from you that, you know, going to, to the US is necessary at a certain level, right? If you want to, if you want to list publicly. Do companies growing in Britain need to be looking at the US? At what, at what point does that become important for when they're looking for capital and getting to a stage of expansion? Is it is it necessary, first of all? Well, I think I think it's um, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's look. I, I guess the um, you know one of the benefits that I really got from Boone Silicon Valley was was one is just understanding what world class looks like. And if you want to build a truly world class company. You need to surround yourself by world-class executives, world-class investors, world-class advisors. And, and so you can do that in different ways. But just to embed yourself in the ecosystem is very helpful. And, you know, I think America is far from perfect, but they do business in many respects incredibly well. And so if you want to build a world-class company, you need to understand how to run a world-class company. And so and you can do that by going to Silicon Valley or going to New York and surround yourself. Or you can do that by you know, consuming a gazillion YouTube videos and understanding and, and learn all this stuff. But I think that's a, if you're trying to build a world-class or world-class company, you need to understand what that takes. And then, and then two is you need to give yourself the resources, you know, both internal and external to, to build a world-class company. And so that's the ambition, that's the culture, that's the drive. Are we, are, are businesses in this country not being ambitious enough? No, a hundred percent no. But I might frame it differently to Pete. I think I would frame it that it is about scale, of course, because scale creates the growth and so on. But it's also about the values and the wider impact that you're having in society. And I think that we have an opportunity here to, I've said it before, but not be Silicon Valley and not embed that just growth at all costs, which I know is slightly not the way that it's framed now in Silicon Valley, but is still a fundamental building block of how they think about just building, building, building. And actually thinking about consequence, thinking about planetary consequence, human consequence, you know, diversity consequence and so on. So I don't think we are ambitious enough. There are, of course, pockets of ambition, but I think inherently we are an island and we have a slight island mentality. And I think we can do a lot more in terms of building ambition around a set of values, not just a set of metrics. How can 
scale-up companies advocate best for themselves when it comes to the the government, the people in power who make these decisions. Is it a question that you you kind of go by sector? There's you know big discussions being had in this country about representation of business groups. Should all businesses be joining together? Are they most effective when you you work with a broader voice to kind of bring that power to it? How what's the best way for companies to advocate for themselves to make the changes that you're talking about? I mean, it's the same point that Pete made about the US being networks. I mean, you're all here in a network. It's a powerful one that it's unrecognizable to 10, 15 years ago, the networks that exist. So embrace them and be part of them. You know, I am president of a network of businesses, some digital businesses, but 100,000 that probably aren't so much digital across the country. There are so many ways to engage and you absolutely should. We're coming up to an election, so you will never find an unfriendly politician. If you run a business, they love you right now. You know, it used to be that I'd see people when I was uh, wobbling through the Lords and they might go away from me. They might think, oh, she's going to come and badger me about not having enough people on the internet. Now they're like, Martha, hi, how's it going with all your members? So it's completely, it's a really good moment. And I think it's very important as a leader, as a scale-up company, as a entrepreneur to be engaged in these discussions and to be fighting for the things that you think you need around you. Is there a kind of a, a single unified message that needs to get through? Is there kind of one thing that would really, I mean, you obviously represent plenty of businesses as well, but is there is there one kind of key message you want you want the people in this room to be? No, I mean, like, I think the key message is, is actually laddered up. It's a bit more meta. I think the key message, and I think this is why it's important, is because you want to bring people who are not just the entrepreneurs with you in the country. So it's a message of port. You know, we will not do what we want to do in this country without growth. Full stop, right? We won't have the public services. We won't be able to have the kind of society that I think we probably all aspire sort of, you know, collectively to, to live in if we don't have growth. And that will come from business. That's it, right? It's not very complicated. I'm not an economist, but that's it. So we need businesses to grow. And right now it's patchy in this country. So we need to be robust about what will take our economy forwards. And we need to continually talk about how to get growth at an individual level and at a collective level. And it's brilliant to see politicians of all shade saying the word growth, but we need them to follow through with what that actually means in terms of policy action. One of the recent efforts from this government focusing on growth was the AI summit. We, we talked about a little bit earlier as well. Did that, look, looking at that event, given your expertise and, and knowledge of the, the industry, did that look like a good stab at that, a good stab at making, you know, the, putting the UK at the centre of that conversation? Um, I, mean, I mean, look, the, my, my initial reaction is like, okay, it's, it's good that it's a topic of conversation. I, I also felt that like, why is it called the AI Safety Summit, not the AI Opportunity Summit? And it, it's not to be sort of, it's you know... It's a of appreciation from the room for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> my phone didn't pick it up. I mean, it's sort of, and it, it's sure, it, it's, it's, it's good that there is a view in terms of the, the harm of, that it can do as well as the benefit. But I just thought that the tone of it, at least the outside in, I wasn't there, but like, was kind of, this is like, we need to just be mindful about this. And so I think it's, because the opportunity is enormous, and I'm an optimist as well, and investing in optimists, but it's, um, you know, I think it, you know, as, as I think other observers have said, there's a lot of politics around it. Um, and I just think that we should be focused on the opportunities, not the negatives around it. But it's, look, if, if there's clearly an opportunity for the UK to be a global force, there's a bunch of British entrepreneurs doing amazing things in, in AI. Um, so I think but they're all doing it in the US. Well, not exclusively. Not exclusively. Not exclusively, but I think there's, I think, and I think if you're an ambitious entrepreneur, I think you kind of have to be, um, thinking about the US about, about, uh, thinking about the US for this stuff. 
Um, I, I'm just worried that it will sort of the focus of government on it this early on. It feels premature um, in terms of just the, you know, you know, having to... Not just getting ahead of the conversation and, you know, kind of getting in there first and, and starting it? Well, I don't... I don't look, I, I think the, you know, the, the opportunity around this is enormous. It, you know, sure, it can be dangerous and there's dangers around it, but I don't think that's a function of AI. I think that's a function of other... You know, whether it's individuals or whether it's privacy, security things, there's nothing to do with AI. And I think the, you know, to, the danger is you could put too much baggage on this airplane and not enable it to take off in this meaningful way. And, and regulation is, you know, is a spectrum. You can be highly or, or you can be hands off. And I think the talent, capital, um, and companies are quite fluid because it's a global industry and they will move to the least regulate least restrictive environments and if uk is is over regulating this then i think it could be like people just opt out and just say uh i mean they're, they're, it's very you know they're not alone either i mean the eu is obviously working on its own ai act as well and and there is you know the brussels concept of regulation that comes from the eu becoming a global standard in in a lot of areas as well is is regulation an, an issue in perhaps not specifically this area but does the is the uk doing well when it comes to the regulation that helps to foster business i think that we have become somewhat mired in regulation that is not altogether helpful. And we could clarify, you know, I'm pro-regulation. I like government. I think government by and large does helpful things, you know, always, not always individual politicians, but the fully paid up member of believing in governments, right? And I think that we, if you look at a landscape of business regulation, you see copycats of things, you see regulations that overlaps, you have existing laws that could be well applied to things that you would not need to create new laws for, right? So I was quite struck by Kamala Harris. I was lucky enough to be in the room when she was making her speech and she was very much reinforcing two things. She was saying, this focus right now should be on public sector use of AI, which I agree with. I think the public sector technologies are the huge opportunities we just discussed. And I think she was also trying to reinforce we have a lot of existing laws that we don't use effectively to govern with technology. We don't necessarily need to wrap ourselves in anxiety about what the future of regulation looks like. So I think we have a mixed business regulation landscape. We can pair it back, make it simpler. And if we think about the online harm bills, for example, started five, six years ago in one place, ended up in a completely different place, mammoth, complex, probably will do some good, might do some harm. But if it had been a simpler, quicker, more iterative piece of regulation, I think it might have been more effective. It's, it's moving so, so fast. Like ChatGPT is less than a year old, less yes. than a year old. Mm-hmm. And you've got all these politicians and governments are like are crowding into this. Like, you have no idea what regulations can be helpful for this yeah, industry or not. That's true. Um, and so I think it's, it feels, it's, look, I, I'm a strong believer in free markets, but we understand that in free markets, there are sometimes bad actors. And so it's important to be sort of on top of it, engaged, but actually just like, let's, let's try to be hands off on it and let's try to foster innovation first and, and just keep an eye on it rather than the sort of heavy handed political approach that I'm worried that, that might happen. We're coming towards the end. I'm going to ask you for, for something to be optimistic about in a moment, but I want to put a, a counterfactual to you is what I'm calling my sliding doors moment. You went away at a point quite early on in your career to move on to the US and you've stayed there. If you'd stayed in the UK, where do you think you'd be now? <laughs> uh, I, I have no idea. I've not thought about it too much. Um, I don't know. I, uh, you know, I was just in my career. I was incredibly fortunate to be sort of early on and be mentored 
by Martha in my early years. And so that and that experience sort of no doubt would not leave technology and that. So I probably started a business in, in the UK. Um, that would have been. Martha, if you'd gone away. I definitely left. I really thought I wanted to go to university in the US. So I'd have probably gone to the US and then I have absolutely no idea. I always wanted to work in the prison surface. So plenty of opportunities there. So I might be a prison warder. Who knows? Right. I'd, I'd watch that series. <laughs> um, let, let's let let's, let's end with a dose of, dose of optimism <laughs> for everyone about, you know, you're speaking to an audience of, of scale-up companies. What is there? What's the one thing you'd be optimistic about if you're growing a business in the UK today? Uh, I think that talent um, is, uh, is night and day from when it was like five years ago. And I think it's like, you know, people say, okay, you want to build company, you, there's 100 VP of sales in Silicon Valley, like, you only need one VP of sales. And there's enough talent in the UK to build interesting businesses today. Martha? I mean, I would say there are lots of things to improve. And I think that's always an opportunity when you're an entrepreneur, or you're starting a company, right? We have lots of challenges that I think there are so many moments we can create incredible businesses around. And I see that happening to a degree, but I just hope people have confidence to be ambitious and raise the money, have diverse founding teams and do a spectacular job of creating a different environment in the UK. Martha Lane Fox, President of the British Chambers of Commerce, Pete Flynn, General Partner at NFX. Thank you to you both for speaking to us at the In The City podcast at The Grow Summit at Battersea Power Station. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of In The City, which was taped at Grow London, a new annual meetup bringing together UK scale-ups. The show will be back next week with the regular host lineup. Don't forget to head over to wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. And if you're already in your podcast apps, search for Bloomberg UK Politics, the daily politics show that I co-host and subscribe to us as well. This episode was hosted by me, Stephen Carroll. It was produced by Summer Sadi with help from Tiwa Adebayo. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to the London Partners team and the Grow Summit event. And of course, Martha Lane Fox and Flint. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.